0: Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavanaugh, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, a deep dive into a Derek Cope victory. And no, we're not talking about the Daytona 500. We answer your questions, and man, did the listeners bring it. And of course, our big Dover preview for the weekend. So, David, we are now beginning our episodes with a historical deep dive. And this week, we are picking Derek Cope's other win in 1990, The June race in Dover. It was a 500-mile affair. If that sounds long for Dover, that's because it was uh, clocking in just at the four-hour mark. There's a reason they used to refer to these races as the 24 hours of Dover. Uh, David, my boy, Rusty, he led the most laps that day, but it was Derek Cope getting the victory. What made you choose this race? Derek Cope,
1: obviously, uh, the 1990 season known for his... Daytona 500 win. Dale Earnhardt cuts a tire on the last lap. Derek Cope inherits the lead, wins the race. Big deal. But it wasn't the only race that he won that year. He also won at Dover. I'm not going to say in similar fashion because it wasn't, but there was a, a little underlying. Dale Earnhardt broke a camshaft on lap 22, and he actually entered that race as the favorite, having won the prior two Dover races. But from that point forward, Derek Cope was strong in that Whitcomb Racing Chevrolet. He passed Rusty Wallace for the go-ahead lead and ended up leading 93 miles of that 500-mile race so uh, far from a fluke. You would think that Derek Cope would consider the Daytona 500 the biggest win of his career, but he did not. He considered Dover that (laughs) keystone victory Uh, He felt that it solidified the fact that he could, in fact, drive a race car. Uh, The things people say now about Cope's Daytona 500 win was something they said then, that it was a fluke. And he was well aware of this. After the race, he said that from all the things that were said at Daytona, it took a little bit of the sweetness away from it because a lot of people said that I lucked into it. But I feel like this win here says more to the world of auto racing that this team is definitely a team that deserves to have some credibility in this sport. And, Alan, I posit that perhaps the biggest impact of Derek Cope's 1990 season in totality was crew chief Buddy Parrott. Hmm. Buddy Parrott won 21 races with Daryl Waldrip between 1977 and 1980. But shortly after that, he began bouncing around the garage, uh, crew chiefing for smaller teams, for drivers like Morgan Shepard, Joe Rutman, Tommy Ellis. Uh, he did spend time at Petty Enterprises and won two races, uh, both in 1984. And it seemed as if the perception was that he was no longer a hot crew chief, an industry-leading crew chief. And that's partially how he ended up with this upstart Whitcomb Racing Team and Derek Cope. These wins for Cope this season in general rejuvenated the status of Buddy Parrott because when Roger Penske Mm. was ramping up his NASCAR Cup Series program and he was building around Rusty Wallace – it was Buddy Parrott was the guy. That was who they hired. Parrott and Wallace went on to win 19 races together, 18 of which came across 1993 and 1994. 10 came in 1993. You Woo. know that season very well. So Buddy Parrott, after about a decade of just kind of hanging around, had this unlikely second chapter of being an industry-leading Cup Series Crew Chief and Alan, I hypothesize that second chapter might not have been written if it wasn't for the 1990 season with Derek Cope and... This Dover race in particular.
0: What an excellent way to weave a piece of history back to a 1990 Dover race with Derek Cope. Very cool, David. I'm enjoying uh, these historical deep dives, new ways of starting off the positive regression episodes. This is episode 102. Let's get to it.
2: When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash bluewire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to indeed.com/bluewire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com/bluewire terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed.
0: David, this week we asked for listener questions, and as always, did our listeners respond? So you submitted the questions. We are going to deliver some answers. You ready to get started, David? Oh, I think so. These are some uh, some good questions we have coming up. Absolutely. Let's start first off from Ben Amato on Discord. David, a good question for you. Is peer... A valid stat to use to argue that one driver is better than another, or do you need to consider other stats to get the full picture? I like this question, David, only because peer is new to a lot of people. It was certainly, you know, kind of new to me when I was just getting into your uh, to your writing and your research and everything. But but peer is the the measure of a driver's performance in equal equipment rating, right? I'll let you go into that a little more, but Ben wants to know, is it the most valid stat to argue if one driver is better than another? Uh,
1: you nailed the definition firstly, and most importantly, but uh, I like Ben's question only that I can tell he is apparently out here trying to win arguments. So <laughs> let, let, let's uh, let's help him. Um, the answer is that It depends on the argument that you're trying to make, and I promise that that is not a cop-out. It is actually an extension of the conversation Alan and I had a few weeks ago about uh, whether it's better to praise performance or harp on inadequate results. Peer, in that conversation, is a purely pragmatic metric. And if you are uh, making the argument that uh, who gets the best results, all equipment, even if if that is your argument, then yes, that is Peer's intention. But we know results themselves can be fluky or not entirely representative of the performance behind it. We have praised efficient passers on this podcast. We've praised good restarters. And all of that is... Uh, compartmentalized measures of driving talent. Even with peer, we can understand scenarios in which some drivers are exceedingly better than others. And here's an example. Alan, do you happen to know or have a guess as to who ranks first in peer in races ending with at least one late restart? Take a wild guess.
0: Uh, I don't know. William Byron.
1: Uh okay, fair. It's a tad bit wild. The answer's <laughs> wild the answer's wilder. It's Matt De Benedetto. Wow. And huh. and 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 if you're having this kind of conversation, if you're saying that this makes Matt De Benedetto better uh as a driver than Kyle Busch, no, that's probably not a cogent argument. But you can't argue the rating in the scenario, right? Right now, Matt Benedetto is the best results getter, all equipment even, in races ending with late restarts. But if that is not the conversation, then the argument, the discussion, becomes more nuanced. And you do have to take a broader look at everything that takes place in a race. And that's okay. Uh, in a world that often fails to comprehend nuance, we should strive for those kinds of conversations uh, so that's that's kind of you know why Alan and I have a podcast. There is a lot of nuance to go around, uh, and we enjoy having those conversations.
0: And, and I think it's a fair question. Look, th- there is no answer, though, right? To argue or or when you say who is the best or is X better than Y, but you know, is Pierre a valid stat to bring up, David? Yes, I think it is. And I think the, the more we do these episodes and the bigger our audience can get and start spreading it amongst their friends, I think Pierre does at least factor in into the conversation when you're trying to have a debate with one another is that fair enough for you? Oh, absolutely.
1: As I said, peer is pragmatic. It is result-based and sometimes the result might not look pretty. It might be ugly, but at the same time, you know, this is this is a results-driven industry. All sports are. Uh, if you want to make the baseball analogy, Are we going to criticize the technique if the swing makes contact and the player gets on base? No, we're not. I mean, you you can, you're you're absolutely welcome to, but that doesn't make the player, you know, a production albatross. Uh, Same here. If a driver is able to get results regardless of anything else he does, he or she, then yes, that's valuable. And it's a valid point to make in any kind of argument when comparing one-on-one talent.
0: I like to bring up peer when it's a it, it's a question between I'm just throwing out a scenario here. Like if I wanted to try to explain to somebody is a 12th place, Michael McDowell finish better than Alex Bowman finishing eighth, right? Who had a better day that day? You know what I mean? I think that's where a factor like peer comes in to try to explain that if you take away or equalize the equipment, you know what Michael McDowell was doing out there, uh, you know, is uh was a bit more impressive Or you can make that argument. Uh, that, that that's when I like to bring it up. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah.
1: The, you know, the, the qualitative way to, to measure which one of those two is a better day is who which of the two teams are actually celebrating the result a little harder, and it probably would be Michael McDowell's in that scenario. But that is something that Pierre would allow you to quantify is to help you understand that, okay, some drivers are not playing on equal footing. The results aren't always on the level. We talk about that with wins. Sometimes we have to apply nuance to how races are won and what ultimately mattered in that result. And the one thing that peers uh, allows us to do is to measure results on
0: an even plane. All right, good stuff from Ben, and, and good luck winning your arguments. I hope you do use Peer and this podcast in all your debates. Uh, so good stuff from Ben Amato. Next up, Matthew N twenty on Twitter wants to know. I'm kind of curious why it seems no NASCAR team has adopted the IndyCar style race strategist model. In listening to many crew chiefs through the years, it seems many are better mechanics than strategists. Has this been tried? Uh, good question from Matthew. I, I don't know if it's been tried, David, but the way I at least I interpret the question, or and correct me if I'm wrong, or if you interpret it differently. Uh, I mean, is he implying that that teams should hire and and employ a a pure race strategist and have that be different from the crew chief, if you will? Uh, and is is that the implication, or how did you interpret the question?
1: Uh, yes, that that is a little bit of how I interpreted the question. And I think the answer is that it has quietly been tried. It's just not formal, as in there hasn't been an official pronouncement with PR spin about some radical new position, but it is common that pit strategy gets offloaded to an engineer or even a software program. Uh, Last week, Dustin Long Uh, my colleague at NBC, asked Greg Ives whether the crew chief position has changed or evolved over the last few years. And Ives alluded to the different jobs he's had in a race shop that warrant his place right now atop the pit box. He's done a little bit of everything. And while there might be some components of the crew chief job that are weak spots for him, he has experience and knowledge in all of them, and he can adequately lead the person who's been handed that responsibility. So it might be a case, or will be a case, that the shift happens, we just don't hear anything formally about it. Uh, I could env- envision a future in which a crew chief, sort of as Greg I've spelled out, becomes a... CEO type role. You hear a lot about this in American college football with uh, head coaches. A CEO type role overseeing specialized departments. Uh, one of them, of course, being race strategy, which, as we've seen, has just grown in importance of late.
0: All right, good question. I, I you know, and I, I was kind of thinking that just in terms of it, you know it feels you know, you don't hear about the the grease monkey word, the grease monkey term anymore with a lot of crew chiefs, right? They have so much on their plate in terms of of what they do. It sometimes you feel like they become personnel managers, you know, the head coach type, like you were saying, CEO of the team, rather than the actual hands-on building of a race car anymore. And some of that it comes with the responsibility of race strategy. So I don't know if it's worth a whole other position. I, I feel like some of these crew chiefs are already in the role of race strategist and they do it well.
1: Yeah. And for those that do it well, they can continue doing it. For those where it's an admitted weakness, then maybe there's somebody to to supplement that. And not not every team has to be built the same way. Why, why does it have to have the same structure? Why does there have to be a crew chief and a car chief and a race strategist? Those are just common terms. All of these teams, they, they, you can build a team however you desire. So I think there is some creativity that hasn't been tapped into we could see roles change, and, and, and it might take one inventive team. Uh, there's a team at Trackhouse Racing that's doing a lot of things differently than the rest of the series that I find fascinating. Uh, maybe it's them. Maybe it's another team coming into the series or a team trying to uh, reshape its identity within the series. I don't know, but there there is certainly room for creativity.
0: All right. Good stuff, Matthew. Thank you for the question. Next up from Jerry Eldred on Discord. With all the rumors of teams expanding and new teams running full-time next year, do you think the next-gen car will dramatically change the financial outlook of the sport? Will we see an influx of cash and new sponsors, or are the rumors just optimism and nothing more? This was a good question, David. Mm. Uh, not not exactly up our alley on positive aggression, but I think we can both weigh in on it just in terms, of, or maybe you do have a good take on it. We'll see. But to me, David, just <laughs> changing the car, I just cha- just a new car doesn't, won't do much for me. Uh, you know, if, if it is ultimately cheaper to run, perhaps that's an easier pitch to a sponsor, right? So if the, if the ask is a little less, maybe that makes a sponsor more attractive to come on over. Uh, if it leads to better racing this car, a better product will lead to more, maybe want an exposure from the sponsorship side. Maybe all of a sudden sponsors say, I want to be involved with that because the product is amazing. The ratings are going up and we need to be involved. Perhaps that will help. Uh, that, that time will tell. David, to me, the biggest boon by far with the new car will be, I think, what is NASCAR's ultimate goal is getting a new manufacturer in the sport. Uh, if you, I've interviewed Brad Keselowski a few times before and heard him talk many times on this. He says there could be nothing bigger for the sport than getting a new manufacturer involved just because that comes with people, that comes with technology. And if you think about every single Toyota, Ford, or Chevy ad you've ever seen, uh, you know, multiply that by a whole new manufacturer, and that's all sorts of exposure for the sport. Exposure is money, if you will. And so from that aspect, if the new next generation car can help facilitate the next manufacturer coming into the sport, that is a rising tide that will raise all the ships, and that means money. Okay.
1: I that That is good. I can't dispute any of what you just said. Um, I broke Jerry's question down into two answers for the for the two questions. I'll address the first one first. Unlike the COT, which uh, was was the last uh, big new era race car, that was entirely about safety, right? That that came in the wake of Dale Earnhardt's death, and that was a major concern at the time. The Gen Seven car that is coming in twenty twenty two was built for the purpose of cutting costs. The process of the build that goes into the Gen 7 should eliminate the need for a CNC machine, uh, a chassis department, and folks working specifically on drive lines. A lot of overhead and personnel is about to be eliminated. I know that it's been a weeks-long celebration since the cars were unveiled, but Folks are going to lose jobs because of this. And that was the intention. That's what team owners wanted. So yes, that will alter the financials of the sport. Uh, And as for a second question about the influx of cash, I I think you nailed it. The the only way that I can see uh, money coming into the sport is if an OEM brings it. If there are new sponsors – I think the most likely scenario will be that sponsors would come in because the yearly nut per car will shrink. There's less cost to cover. So in theory, it should cost less to become a sponsor. We'll see what happens there. So will there be more money in the sport? I I don't. I don't know. I, I. I do. I think you're right, Alan. I think that's solely dependent on a manufacturer. But there is a scenario in which there is more money to go around for the people that are still in the sport, and I think that was the day one goal of the RTA, uh, spearheading this uh, this path for the the next gen car.
0: I know costs will be cut, but. I'm still always suspicious of teams. The, the money will go somewhere. The, N- N- NASCAR teams, they're never very good about not spending money, it seems, right? If you save somewhere, it, it just goes in some other department or in, in some other pursuit of speed. So we'll see while uh, while costs should be cut eventually, and just in terms of whether it be people or travel or what have you, it, it does seem like the resources just get redirected rather than uh, so, you know, reinvested okay, so, so- in, in a bank account. Okay. So, so I'll ask you this. I mean,
1: if, if it's, if it is travel, I think Jeff Gluck said in his chat earlier today that the days of uh, the three, day, three day shows are as dead as a dodo bird, but we might be one day going back to two day shows. So initially you have what 36 38 nights a year that have already been cut and it's probably going to be more. So if it's a, a series wide industry wide cost cutting initiative, who do you think? takes the money where do you think it goes do you think it's people do you think it's drivers crew chiefs what where where do you think what's Alan Ooh, what's Alan come on thinking on this one
0: I think it gets reinvested into speed somehow I mean whether look I'm not smart enough to know how what makes these cars go fast or where you know do you do you get an extra computer or engineer um, you know it's something to make the car go faster I think it gets reinvested into making the car go faster uh, I don't I, I just don't believe it gets pocketed because this is a competitive sport and every single resource in hundredth of a second matters and, and I, I just I haven't seen it before right when they when they made costs or when they've cut back things to save money I just feel like it gets redistributed somewhere else to make cars go faster
1: hmm you know what that leads me to believe is that if a new manufacturer came in other manufacturers the pre-existing ones, would spend more to compete. So, you know that. I, I mean that that might be something that tips it too. That I mean that one manufacturer acting as a market disruptor could up the ante, and that could be a snowball effect. That, I, I think that's that's real.
0: All right. I don't know if we have much of an answer for you there, Jerry, but uh, I hope uh, it leads to more discussion. We will uh, will we keep on top of it. Uh, next up from Adam Sturgeon on Discord. Prior to Darlington, Joey Logano, Kyle Busch, and Christopher Bell had big peer differences between the two different horsepower packages. Is this likely to correct itself as the sample size increases, or is this a baked-in weakness that all these teams will have to deal with for the remainder of the year? Great question Adam. We uh, actually addressed this David not too long ago on the podcast. We were talking about Joey Logano. Uh he had a super high peer, like a ridiculous peer, what at the 750 tracks I believe, and yes. a ridiculously low peer at the 550 tracks. And, and I asked you just uh impromptu, do you think one goes up if you does the low one go up, does the high one come down? do they meet in the middle somewhere? You know, are these both anomalies if you will? And uh, I think this is exactly what Adam was asking here. So what do you think, where do you think this goes in terms of when you're good on one, not so good on the other, does it even out? Do, do you have a weakness throughout the season? How do you think it plays out?
1: Yeah. Okay. I, I think it's a little bit different for all three of the drivers that he mentioned, but if I had to point to a commonality, I'd say the gap between the splits at the end of the season won't be this big. That's that's just kind of how sample sizes work. But for one example in particular, Kyle Busch, and it's sort of already tipping in a better direction after Darlington with a third-place finish, he can pass for position just fine on 750 tracks. That's always been the case. But as far as contending for high finishes, uh, and, and that is what Peer indicates. He's been invisible for the bulk of this season to date. Part of the problems is restarts from preferred groove positions at 750 tracks. Preferred groove, as in he wants to be there. He's lost 16 spots, and that is the biggest net loss in the series from inside the top 14 that's not Kyle Busch-like. I mean, that is that is an oddball number, uh, just this this weird thing that he's experiencing right now. Perhaps it is a sign of things to come, but we have seen him perform better. We know he is a competent restarter. I would prefer to bet on the things that we've seen, and it's the same for – Bell, he was better last year on 550 than he was at 750. This year, it's flipped. Uh, Logano, too, we've talked about his passing, but also, is he really this bad at 550? That should <laughs> be correct. It's it's how their underlying numbers are affecting the results at some of these tracks. And it might be as simple as identifying that one deficiency, even though I say simple, it might not be so simple to execute the actual correction but for for all of these guys when you see those weird splits like that it's just going to be a case by case basis that it i would expect most of them to shrink but also i don't know it might be a harbinger
0: Yeah. I mean, if we're looking numbers wise, right. uh, Mathematical wise, I mean, I mean, these things do come back to the mean. Is that fair to say you're the analytical one here? So yeah, Yeah, yeah. that that might be the the predictive thing to say, but you know, these are race car drivers. These are, everyone has a different oddball of a season sometimes. So it's, it's hard to predict, but we know what is most likely to happen, I guess is what we're saying.
1: Yeah, so we can we can do two things here. We can do kind of a, a post-mortem analysis and understand that if there's a bad split or or your a driver's just considerably weak on one track type, then okay, that happened. And we need to understand why it happened. And then the second part is we're trying to make a prediction for the future. And the rational expectation is for these drivers who we have seen be better, we can expect that positive regression occurs and that gap closes between the peer splits or the the weak spot becomes much better because the drivers that we are talking about, uh, primarily Kyle Busch and Joey Logano, are far better than these numbers would have you believe.
0: All right. Good stuff. Good stuff from our listeners, as always. So much good stuff. We had so many good questions, David. We are going to do an extra episode of listener questions. So next Tuesday, our podcast drops on a Thursday. Next Tuesday, we'll have a special bonus episode of Positive Regression with more listener questions. We have more than we can answer at the moment. So that, that that's just awesome. That means you're listening and coming up with great questions for us. And we'd love to give you good answers. So next Tuesday, a special bonus episode of Positive Regression will drop wherever you get your feeds Obviously, hopefully you're a subscriber. It will pop up in your feed. So make sure you check out next Tuesday. Uh, David, we have some more research to do because we got a lot of good questions to go over. Uh, We do, but I'm looking forward to it. All right, let's move on. We are going to Dover this weekend. The Cup Series is heading up there. Uh, for Remember, they raced there one weekend last year, but it was a double header. So, D- David, when we're looking toward Dover this season, uh, you pointed out that this was one of the tracks hit hardest by the high downforce package. That was in 2019 when they tried it. NASCAR made it low downforce for the two races last year in 2020. Uh, when you looked at both those years, what do you think changed You know, in terms of speed, passing, all that stuff. And what do you think we should expect this weekend?
1: So the, you remember that blowback in 2019 about how how poor of a race it was or how difficult it was to pass was, was the main complaint. Mm-hmm. And the numbers bear that out. But we think about Dover. It's always been a difficult track. It's incredibly thin. It does have a drivable high groove. But pit road's a mess. It's hard to get on and off. And it's just a track that throws a lot of curveballs. And in essence, it has always been a track position race. It just became magnified in that one year with high downforce. Now, the 2019 race, if it was based purely on track position, if it was difficult to pass, drivers complained, fans complained. Okay. Last season, the correction was made, and I think this is the, the right direction to go in. The correlations between speed rank and finishing position for the two races, it was double header. Uh, the first leg was a, a positive 0.85. The second leg was a positive 0.93. Those are high correlations. Uh, and I should say the second is better than the first, even though the field was inverted to, uh, to start the second race uh, based on the finish of the first race. Now, it was still largely difficult to pass. Denny Hamlin won the first race of the doubleheader last season. He did so with a negative surplus passing value for the race. Track position dictates a lot, though, and he had a fast car that could defend position for the most part, but he was less encumbered, we'll say, than he would have been in 2019. Uh, a lack of horsepower um, didn't stifle his uh, his creativity, a lack of downforce didn't stifle his uh, creativity. And I showed some video examples of this in an article last year for Motorsports Analytics. The correlation sort of spoke to how, uh, like most 750 tracks, the relationship is very close. And when that happens, it's still difficult to pass. I, 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 we have to remind folks, if a car in front of you is faster, it's going to be tough to pass that car. It's going to take a lot of work. But that's a normal difficulty, which is different than an artificially created difficulty. So I think we're heading in the right direction, but tough place to pass. Restarts do not alleviate this, Alan. As a matter of fact, the only positional gains from the inside groove across the two races last year uh, between rows two and seven came from Penske cars, two from Ryan Blaney, one from Joey Logano, that's it. Just those three gains for, for three spots across two races. Uh, the inside groove is at a severe disadvantage. And again, that speaks to the difficulty of Dover International Speedway. It is truly a a different breed. It is a tough track.
0: Uh, just reading into what we, you know, last year, Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick were, you know, were were the two on top, right? They were tearing through the cup series and they were the winners at, at a track like Dover. Should we read anything into that? Maybe I'm asking this too early in the in the podcast. We're going to pre- pick our winners later, but it, should we read anything into that in terms of, you know, Martin Truex Jr. seems to be dominating. Does that mean he's going to go out there and dominate? Is there, is there some correlation there that, that who's, you know, whoever happens to be the man this year is going to go out and really do something at Dover?
1: I think it speaks to strength. I think it, it, I mean, it certainly makes sense. And Dover is a straightforward race, and it's a track position race, so it stands to reason that if you seem to be doing a little bit of everything very well, or in the case of Martin Truex at Darlington, incredibly well, I will say, if James Small is dialing in setups before the race starts, now the rest of the series is in trouble. But if they continue that. That role, I mean, if, if you're just doing things at a series elite pace, then yeah, every track is going to start to look like an opportunity to win. So it should fall in the wheelhouse of Martin Truex, really all the JGR guys uh, that seem to have the 750 tracks especially figured out
0: yeah, they're going fast this year on those seven hundred and fifty tracks, but Dover, it, we know it's unique because it has a concrete surface. Uh, anything to that in terms of anything you can glean by looking at numbers or or the data or however you do your research, David, is there anything that that Dover's unique surface that that it could possibly favor one driver over another?
1: Yeah, so I'll be curious to see how this manifests. Uh, there's there's no practice. But there will be three different series having races. Uh, The Arc East, in addition to the Xfinity series, will run before the cup race. Rubber buildup on top of concrete changes the racing surface, and it creates strong spots and weak spots on the track in terms of grip. And that forces drivers to search for the strong spots. It stands to reason that this place catered to Jimmy Johnson for so long, former uh, off-road truck racer, uh, Tony Stewart to sprint car racer on dirt drivers with experience on dirt who were used to hunting for grooves. That's what makes Kyle Larson uh, given his speed this season and the fact that he's already won here, it gives him a leg up and similarly, Justin Allgaier, Darlington winner last week, fastest driver in the Xfinity series, also a dirt guy. This track should suit him well this weekend. Uh, No trucks, but Sheldon Creed, too, when trucks visited Dover. A lot of fun to watch. And again, it's that formative dirt racing uh, on his resume. Not that other more experienced drivers can't cut it at this track, but the life hack that Dover sort of requires is something that is instilled to some of these former dirt racers
0: at a formative age.
1: And that gives them a leg up.
0: Sheldon Creed versus Marcus Limonis is the undercard on Friday for Dover. No, I kid, I kid, I kid, I kid because I care. Now, anyway, let's move on. We're thinking about the Sunday cup race here. Our picks to win, David, I'll let you go first. I always like to hear your picks. Hope it's something similar to mine, but we'll see. Who is your pick to win Dover? I think I just detailed it, but I'm picking Larson and a blowout. Oh, too easy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, OK, we have an idea of who might be competitive, right, given that it's a 750 track. But for every reason, I think, you know, what made Larson good and exciting and uh, performed so well last week at Darlington, That. Similar rationale should be behind him as a favorite this weekend in Dover. Uh, Should be enhanced, even, given what's sort of required to do well here. And with track position so tough to get, with, again, Dover's pit road is just so hard to get on and off. I actually think that that's going to eliminate a lot of risk taken during green flag pit cycles if we see them. Uh, So if I'm expecting a straightforward race then I would expect Larson to also be the source of the highlights.
0: All right. Not bad. I also picked a Hendrik car because I, I, I don't know. I just like, uh, what they're doing, and uh, I picked the fastest Hendrick car, though, at 750 horsepower tracks. Maybe something of a surprise, David, but I'm going with young Willie B. William Byron, I think he pulls it out in Dover. Uh, he's on a streak of top tens. I think it's 10 top tens in a row. Something like, It's something crazy that no one's done since Jeff Gordon for Hendrick Motorsports, but William Byron is just sitting there. Kyle Larson, you know, get the wins and the headlines, but I just feel like William Byron is doing a little more and more each week And when I look at the the analytics of it all on motorsports analytics and the speed charts, I think he grabs himself one. William Byron wins Dover. What do you think?
1: Strong pick. Strong team right now. Driver two. Uh, Great run uh, in the second leg last year at Dover. I have to ask for you, has he graduated from contrarian status?
0: Oh, absolutely. Okay. I think so. Um, I would never pick him as a contrarian. Again, it might be a surprise to pick him as an overall winner. It's tough to, yeah, he's not in that category yet, where he's until now, I guess, but it, it was a little hard. You know, he's not in the Hamlins or Larsons or True of the world for me quite yet, where you can rely on him to be a reliable win pick. So this is something of a stretch because just he's still a young driver who hasn't collected all those checkered flags yet, but. Something of a stretch, but I think it's doable. The performance is there. Okay. I, I agree with you. I think it, it could end up being a good day for, for really all of, uh, of
1: Hendrick, given what we've seen of him uh, this year.
0: All right. Good stuff. Now we move on to our contrarian performers. Who is going to uh, maybe surprise us or outdo, uh, maybe surprise you with the top five or top 10 or just give you something you weren't expecting? David, I'll let you go first. Who's your contrarian pick for Dover?
1: I'm going to double down on the dirt background and pick Tyler Reddick. Nice. Uh, He is a former winner at Dover in the Truck Series. I'm actually kind of perplexed as to how he didn't uh, earn a win when he was in the Xfinity Series, but I do give him a sporting chance this weekend. Uh, The speed ranking, uh, the median speed for his RCR team, 14th for the year at 750 tracks. Ranked 6th last week at Darlington, also a top eight passer this season on 750 tracks, so hmm, I, I suppose I'm, uh, I'm I'm betting big on the potential. Uh, I guess I'm just curious to see what what he's got because uh, seemingly the ingredients are there for being a, a good Dover driver. All
0: right, good stuff. Uh, there's some something maybe we can deeper look into, David, because we seem to our contrarian picks seem to, a lot of them seem to always focus on the RCR cars because I'm going with Austin Dillon and you know, he is having a, a great start to the season. If you look back on last year's Dover races, which is what I'm doing. Uh, he had great runs. He had a top 10. He led a bunch of laps in the first Dover race and it was a speeding penalty. I had to look it up because he, he came back and, and finished in the teens somewhere I Had a terrible finish after leading a bunch of laps. And it turned out it was a speeding penalty. When I, uh, I asked his crew chief about it, you know, what happened to you guys? and yeah it was a speeding penalty going in the final stage and there just wasn't enough time for them to come back so two good days in dover last season and i think that carries over to this year and i expect him uh give us a top 10 run and i think that's uh asking you know that, that'd be a pretty good day for the three car so i'm you're picking tyler reddick i'm picking austin dylan and I, I don't know what that says about rcr that they're constantly on that borderline contrarian status i think they need a bit of a breakout if they want to move up you know what i mean yeah, it's better than backmarker status. There I mean, you, go. you know, <laughs>
1: you, you, you gotta you gotta be the glass half full type. Uh, I, I mean, the, the the program's fine. It's it's a bunch of smart people working at RCR. The drivers are kind of figuring things out. Austin Dillon and, and actually now Tyler Reddick kind of put themselves in decent positions to try to point their way into the playoffs. It's coming up on a stretch uh, this summer that's going to see some road course races. We've pointed out how much that uh, of, of much of a weakness is. So a race like the one we're going to see this weekend, yeah, good performance
0: is uh, kind of a must. All right, we'll see what happens. Good show David episode 102 of Positive Regression. Don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, TuneIn and YouTube. We're available no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. This stuff helps in spreading the word. We always notice and it's so appreciated. If you have questions, you know we'd love to hear them. We love to answer them. Reach out on Twitter at posregpod POS E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. Tell us what you're working on this week. Uh, A whole lot going
1: on this week, actually. On NBC Sports, an analysis of Greg Ives' impact on Alex Bowman's season and also a race preview in advance of Dover. And I'm back on Forbes this week, a look into the NASCAR Euro Series, which makes its return In Valencia this weekend, uh, specifically wanted to focus on why the Euro Series might become a rung on the ladder to the Cup Series for American racers. I actually talked with Myatt Snyder and Julia Landauer for that one. Uh, Also on Forbes, a little bit of an IMSA mid-Ohio Preview, my interview with John Church, owner of JDC Miller Motorsports, the winning team at Sebring, about how his operation is succeeding in the Daytona prototype class on a fraction of the budget of bigger teams. A little sports car money ball for you, if you will, Alan. Uh, So that is a lot, I know, but uh, I would appreciate it if uh, you did happen to check all of that out
0: good stuff and the sports cars are back this weekend I know that because I do a now a series for speed sport called uh, quick hits and after you listen to this podcast on Thursday check out my Twitter account at Alan Kavanaugh or at speed sport and uh, watch the quick hits video because it gets you ready for the weekend of racing that does include uh, David those sports cars and it's indie in the month of May so kind of branch out from the NASCAR side and that's been fun to do so check out the latest quick hits video every Tuesday or yeah every Tuesday make sure you check out the uh, the recap of the weekend that we do with our Gas and Go. So it's been fun to do the work with Speed Sport. Make sure you also set that Fantasy Live lineup. We help you out, NASCAR Fantasy Live. Myself and Amy Long, always helping you out over at NASCAR.com. So make sure you click on that and just keep up with me on all the social media channels. And again, don't forget, next Tuesday... We're dropping a special episode of Positive Regression, more listener questions, and they are some good ones. So make sure you look forward to that as well. David, another good episode we will have back here next week. Make sure you watch all the racing this weekend and just enjoy yourself. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Have a great weekend.